Mark 6, 17 through 19, 17 through 29, we're ending today our series on the life of John the Baptist. And today we're gonna see, we're gonna end, unfortunately, with his death, his unjust execution. This is one of those infuriating cases that we see all the time in the world today and existed back then too, where the bad guys seem to win. A, a, a terrible ruler executes a righteous man and for no real crime at all. And again, we see, this thing, we see this kind of thing happen all the time, just in daily life, on the news. It's one reason why we as Christians, we so, we so look forward to the return of Jesus because that's when all this stuff is gonna get reversed. As, as one character in fiction says, everything, everything sad will come untrue and everything unjust will be turned into justice. We look forward to that day. But in the meantime, how do we manage? How do we go on? This story today is about four different people. Four people who all were slaves and yet one of them was actually free. Four people who, I think we have one of every one of these people inside of us. We have a little bit of every one of these people inside of us. And the question is, how much are you gonna let that side win? And which side is going to ultimately triumph in your heart and in your life? So we're going to pick up the story with Mark 6, verses 17 through 29. Verse 17 says, For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a battles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So four, four people in this story. Let's start with Herod first. Herod, there's actually three Herods in the Bible, so it can get kind of confusing. This guy is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great, the one we know from the Christmas story who tried to put baby Jesus to death. Herod Antipas, unlike his father, didn't rule all of Israel, but just Galilee. He was the Roman-backed ruler of Galilee, the northernmost province of Israel at the time, and the, the region where Jesus grew up and started his ministry. Herod was married. He was married to a princess of the kingdom of Nabatea, but on a trip to Rome, he fell in love with his brother Philip's wife. And if that's not icky enough for you, she was also his niece. So enjoy that. Um, they both divorced their spouses and married each other, which of course was a clear violation of the law of Moses. I mean, punishable by death, but nobody's gonna call them out. 
because he's the king. He's got the power of Rome at his back. He's the son of one of the most ruthless leaders who ever lived. And so the priests didn't speak up. The Sanhedrin didn't speak up. Nobody spoke up except John. You know why? Because John was a prophet of the Lord. What does a prophet do? A prophet tells the hard truth. Being a prophet didn't pay much. Being a prophet didn't make you popular because people don't like the people who tell them the things they don't want to hear. And Herod was the kind of man who didn't have to have anybody around him telling him things he didn't want to hear. In fact, when he heard what John was saying, he put him in jail. You know, back in the 90s, when Michael Jordan was at the height of his powers as a basketball player, I still think the greatest basketball player ever. If you want to argue with me later, that's fine. You're wrong, but it's fine. Uh, but at the height of his powers, he suddenly shocked the world by retiring from basketball. And for several years, he tried to make it to the major leagues as a baseball player. Bizarre event. It's one of those things you look back on and think, did it really happen? But I remember at, at the press conference where his retirement was being announced, the owner of the Chicago Bulls, his team, Jerry Reinsdorf, he said the following. He said, Michael Jordan has the American dream. He can have anything he wants. He can do anything he wants. And he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. That's a pretty good way of stating what our culture tells us happiness looks like, right? That's what we get from advertisements. That's what we hear from our friends, our peers, and maybe even from our, our families. This idea that if you want more happiness, go out and get more stuff. If you want more happiness, go out and have these experiences. If you want more happiness, then get rid of all the things that stress you out, that cause you trouble, that cause you pain, and especially the people who bring you down right? The people who get in the way, get rid of those people. And Herod had the power to do that. Herod had the American dream. He wouldn't have called it the American dream. There was no America then. It's, it's really the human dream. People since the beginning of time have desired it. And Herod was one of those lucky few who had it, but he wasn't happy. Guess what? Michael Jordan wasn't happy either, but that's a sermon for another time. How do I know that Herod wasn't happy? I mean, obviously, I'm not a psychologist, and I obviously don't know the man. How can I tell that this man was not happy? Two reasons. Number one, because he was willing to give up half of his kingdom out of pure lust for his stepdaughter. Here's the thing about lust and desire. Uh, all of us have desires, right? All of us have wants. And those aren't necessarily bad. If you didn't want food, you'd starve to death. If human beings didn't desire one another sexually, there would be no marriage, there would be no families, the human race would cease to exist. Desire on its own is fine, it's a good thing. But when it rules you, that's when it becomes a problem. Herod was not happy because he was ruled by his appetites. Let me give you an example. Okay, so this past Thursday, if you got together with family and you had good food, good turkey, I, I love people who are like, I don't like turkey. You just don't have the right person cooking it, okay? My wife knows how to make a turkey. Thursday afternoon, 1.30, 2 o'clock, when you are stuffed to your Adam's apple, if you've got one, when you are just so full, if someone came to you at that point and said, hey, Let's, I'm going to Burger King to pick up some onion rings. You want to come with me? Would you want to do that? No, of course not. In fact, as your friend, as your pastor, don't go to Burger King at all, okay? This stuff's terrible. But, even, but especially if you're, if you're depraved enough to like that kind of stuff, at 1.30, 2 o'clock on Thanksgiving afternoon, that doesn't sound good. You don't desire that because you're full, because you're content. See, people who are happy don't desire things that aren't good for them. People who are content don't, aren't ruled by their appetites. 
Herod was. Herod had so many things that you and I would love to have, wealth, power, and, and, and acclaim. He had all kinds of luxury, and yet he saw this girl, and in this girl he saw something he wanted but couldn't have. And the interesting thing is when you read the secular history of, of Herod's life, you find out he was not a fool. He was a shrewd politician. He was a, an ambitious leader. He wasn't in, in the habit of throwing around his power or, or being loose with his power. No, so why would he offer half of his kingdom? I mean, have you ever thought about how he was planning to explain that to the Romans? Hey, I gave away half my province because that's how much enslaved he was to his appetites, to his desires. It can happen to us, and it, it is happening to many of us, all right? If I'm making eye contact with you right now, don't, it's not weird, I'm just guessing, right? It's the Holy Spirit. That's one reason. The second reason I know he was unhappy is because of verse 20. Verse 20 says that when he heard John speak, he was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly. It's an interesting sentence because the word perplexed, the Greek word that's translated perplexed means he was indecisive. In other words, whenever he heard John speak, even though John was not saying anything he wanted John to say, he knew in his mind that John was right. He knew, and you can imagine this, this, Herod, you know, this, this ruler sitting on the throne, listening to John speak and thinking to himself, you know, I am a sinner. I've done terrible things. I do terrible things. And God is real. And someday I'm going to have to stand in, in judgment before him. And I know that's going to be a terrible day for me. I know that my soul is bound for hell and I deserve it. And I need to change. And, and, and I'm sure he was thinking to himself, whenever he would hear John speak, I'm going to do it. I'm going to repent. I'm going to get right with God. And just imagine all the good that I can do. And then as soon as John went away and the sermon was over, he would start thinking, why would I ever do that? I have a palace. I have a throne. I have power. I have wealth. I have everything a man could want. Why would I give all that up? What, am I going to go out to the desert with John and eat bugs and wear camel's hair? No. Why would I do that? Why would I give all that up? He was indecisive. And yet he kept bringing John out of that jail to talk to him again and again and again. Why? Because in spite of all of his wealth and all of his power and everything that he had, there was this big gaping hole in the center of who Herod was. And no matter how much stuff he gained and no matter how many experiences he had and no matter how often he indulged himself, that hole couldn't be filled. That's enslavement. That's bondage to appetite, to lust. And instead of choosing new, agreeing with John and giving his heart to the Lord and changing, he looked at Salome, this girl, and he said, okay, just one more time. If I just, if I just indulge myself one more time, if, I just, if I'm just selfish, allow myself to be selfish one more time, then it will be enough. And of course it wasn't. We know from the scriptures that later on, John, or Herod was in, intensely guilty about his part in the death of John. And when he heard that Jesus was traveling through Galilee and winning souls and accumulating this great crowd. He said, oh, I know what this is. This is John the Baptist come to life, which is an entirely uh, irrational thing to think. But that's what you think when you're guilty. God brought him back from the dead to torment me. And we know that years later on Good Friday, when Pontius Pilate didn't want to deal with the problem of this innocent carpenter from Nazareth, he sent him to, to, to uh, Herod as the ruler of, of Jesus's home region said, hey, you, you decide what to do with this guy. And Herod wanted nothing to do with Jesus. God in human flesh, standing right in front of him. Redemption in a person right there. 
Herod's time had passed. He was not interested in the things of God by then at all. He had let appetite totally consume him. Later on, Josephus tells us that his ex-father-in-law, the king of Nabatea, attacked and humiliated Herod militarily as retribution for humiliating his daughter through divorce. Also, his nephew betrayed him to the Romans and the Romans deposed him from his throne. Herod died in exile. That's the end of a life consumed by appetite. Now, there's a second character, and that is Herodias. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of people, especially men, who like to see Herodias as the true villain of the story. As if Herod's this innocent guy, this just regular old dude, and he's, he's got a manipulative wife who sort of sets him up to fail, uses him for her own purposes. That's giving Herod way too much credit. And it's also forgetting the fact that we have a lot in common with Herodias. See, years ago, when I was wet behind the ears, brand new at this preaching thing, I, I was at a church that had no young adult Bible study group at all. And I was young and idealistic enough to think that if I just taught a really good Bible study every Sunday, then young adults would come flocking to that church and everything would be great. So every Sunday I would study for my sermon and I'd study for a Sunday school lesson. And every Sunday, two or three, maybe five at most would show up. One of the people who was most faithful to that class was a lady who I'll call Mary, not her real name. Mary was a, a faithful Christian. She loved the Lord. She's a genuinely good person, but she didn't know the Bible at all. And so often my carefully prepared Bible study would get derailed because I'd have to chase some rabbit based on something that she had said in the midst of the class. Like the Sunday she announced to the whole class, you know, my favorite verse in the whole Bible is God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible, right? So that was a whole class that was dealing with that. We also had a guy who came periodically uh, that we'll call Jim. Jim was going through a really nasty divorce. And so every time Jim showed up, he gave us a little update on how things were going and it was never good. And one particular Sunday, I, I, something that I said in my Bible study reminded Jim of his ex-wife. And so he took that as an opportunity to let us all know that she was now accusing him of abusing their little three-year-old daughter, trying to gain full custody, trying to hurt him in the eyes of everyone else. And he was so angry about that. And I, I can still picture him. His face was red, his teeth were grit. And he was talking about how much he hated her. And he said, you know, I think about this all the time. If I'm ever driving down the street and I see her crossing the road in front of me, I'm just gonna hit the gas and plow right through her and keep on driving. Now, I gotta tell you, no matter how hard you study the Bible and how, how well you prepare for, for a Sunday school lesson, you're not ready to answer that, okay? There's just nothing you got. But Mary started speaking and I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> what's she gonna say? But here's what she said. She said, you know, you've got a lot of bitterness in you and I understand why, but you know, God knows what she's doing to you and if you'll just let him handle her, he'll punish her in a way that's way better than anything you could do. And meanwhile, you can let go of all that bitterness before it poisons you, before it eats you up inside. And my jaw dropped because I'm like, that's the perfect thing to say. I mean, right then, she was essentially John the Baptist. She was a prophet of the Lord speaking truth into that situation in a way that I didn't know what to say. 
And a lot of us have that same bitterness inside of us. I'm not going to try to speculate which one of you is dealing with bitterness, but in the, in the course of a human life, we all go through times where we're deeply wounded, where we're furiously angry about something that's been done to us. And, and I'm not saying those feelings are wrong, but when it becomes bitterness, when, here's, where, here's how you know it's bitterness, okay? It's bitterness when you're having these little imaginary conversations with that person. Because unlike Herodias, you don't have the power to have them put to death or even thrown into prison. You don't have the power to do anything to them. So instead, you have these imaginary conversations where you tell them exactly what you think of them. And in, in these imaginary conversations, of course, they're dumbstruck by, by your words and they're humiliated and you make them feel as bad as they've made you feel. And for that brief little moment, it, you feel good. Or, or you, you tell all your friends, you, you make sure the maximum number of people know what an evil person that person is. Or even better, you spontaneously hear somebody else say something bad about that person and you're like, hallelujah, somebody else knows how bad they are. And that brings you a little sense of delight. You know, in a lot of ways, bitterness is like addiction to pain medication because you're living with this pain, this heartache. And then for those brief little moments, during those imaginary conversations and, and when you're talking bad about that person and when you hear somebody else say something bad, for those brief little moments, you get the surge of joy for that brief little moment you don't hurt. And then the moment passes and then you hurt again and you need a bigger hit next time. And pretty soon you're saying bad things about this person to people who are gonna go back to that person and tell them. And you're just getting into this spiral. It makes it worse and worse. And meanwhile, in the midst of all of this, that, that bitterness, just like an addiction, that bitterness is warping your soul and making you someone you don't wanna be. See, Jesus told us, love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. And we hear that and we say, I could never do that, Lord. Why would you, why would you do that? Why, don't you understand what it means to hurt? Remember Jesus, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? Yes, he knows what it is to hurt. And yet, how can he say that to us? Love your enemies, pray for those who hate you. Forgive as you've been forgiven. I, I hear Christians say all the time, I can't forgive, I, I hurt too much. I can't forgive, I'm still too angry. Please understand something. I hope if you don't hear anything else I say, I hope you hear this. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'm over it. You can still be angry and forgive. You can still be hurt and forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean I trust you as if you never hurt me before. For instance, if you've been abused, forgiveness doesn't mean you go back to that person and let them hurt you again. That's not what I want you to do. That's not what God wants you to do. Forgiveness simply means this. It means I won't make you pay. I want you to pay. I want you to feel the way I felt. I want, I want you to experience the pain that I experienced. I want you to pay for what you did to me, but I choose not to make you pay. I'm not gonna do anything to hurt you. I'm not gonna talk bad about you so that others think badly of you. I'm not gonna hope bad things happen to you. I'm not gonna rejoice when bad things happen to you. I'm not even gonna allow myself the pleasure of hating you in my heart. I'm gonna feel angry as long as the anger lasts, but whenever I feel that anger boil up inside of me, whenever my stomach churns when I see you or when someone mentions your name, I'm gonna take that as a cue to pray for you in that moment because that's what Jesus told me to do. And I figure 
that if I do that often enough, the devil's going to figure out that his strategy is backfiring and he's going to leave me alone. He's going to go to some softer target that's not as committed to obedience. And that's what forgiveness is. So when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you, forgive as you've been forgiven, he wasn't trying to make your life hard. He was trying to set you free. There's a third person in this story, and that's Salome. Now, honestly, her name is never given to us in the scriptures, but the, the Jewish historian from that time, Josephus, he tells us her name was Salome. Salome, according to Josephus, later on married one of her uncles because that's how they did things in the Herod family, apparently. Uh, the Herod family tree must look more like a family spider web, you know? No, not as many branches and more connections. Because then when that uncle died, she married another uncle. And I have to imagine that as she got older, as her beauty faded, she thought a lot about that night of her stepfather's birthday party. Thought a lot about the opportunity that she wasted. Because here's a young woman, right? In a, in a culture where women have no power at all, who had an opportunity to be the co-ruler of Galilee or anything else she desired. And she wasted it on a moment of spite that wasn't even her spite. It was secondhand spite. She had nothing to show for this incredible opportunity that lay before her. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how many of you have ever thought about this, but there's another character in the Bible who has a similar story. Another young woman, very beautiful, attracted the attentions of a king. The king offered her up to half of his kingdom. I mean, so many details the same. This young woman's name was Esther. The choice she made was to rescue her people from genocide. So two young women, very similar circumstances. One becomes a subject of infamy and shame. The other becomes a hero for all time. So what's the difference? See, if Herod was consumed by, ruled by his appetite, if Herodias was ruled by bitterness, Salome was ruled by folly. And folly is not a word we use a lot. It's a derivative of the word foolishness. It basically means lack of good sense. So if you're ever watching the news and you see someone do something stupid, and you think, what were they thinking? That's folly. If you've ever made a bad decision and whenever you think about that decision, you're like, oh, I'd like to take that one back. I'd like to go back and do that over. You committed an act of folly. I have news for you. You're not going to like this. We're all ruled by folly by nature. We're all born fools. We are. And I know some of you are highly educated. Good for you. I know some of you have built up a lot of common sense. A lot of, uh, you know, the school of hard knocks has birthed in you a person who knows how to, how to be street smart. Good for you. Some of you have incredible skills and I'm glad to know you, but it's still true. You're a fool by nature and I'll prove it to you. Proverbs 28, verse 26. The wisest man ever lived wrote these words. He said, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So no matter how big your brain is, no matter how big your common sense is, you're a fool by nature if you trust in that alone. But, Solomon writes, he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So there's a solution to the problem of folly. There's a cure to your inborn foolishness, and that is to learn wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make the right decision. 
Wisdom is the ability to choose the correct path so that you can actually, and this is true, you can live without regrets. You can live a life where you look back and go, okay, good decision, good decision, good decision. God has led me all this way. And I haven't been perfect, but in the major decisions of life, I've chosen correctly. You can have that, but how? You know, if you could bottle and sell that, you'd be a billionaire, but you can't. It's not something you can buy. It's not something you can go to, go to a university and attain. It's not something you can attend a seminar or, or take a supplement. It's none of that. Here's the only way to gain wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. So for instance, here's another difference between Esther and Salome. When young Esther knew that her king was, she was about to approach the king, the king of Persia, her husband, Artaxerxes, she was about to go before him and, and actually it's Xerxes, not Artaxerxes, but it doesn't matter. About to go before him and request the salvation of her people. What does she do first? She goes away for three days to fast and pray. Three days alone with God because she's like, I want to make sure that I'm saying the right words, that I'm doing the right thing. I don't want to waste this opportunity. Now, which one are you more like? Are you more like Salome and you just sort of shoot from the hip and do whatever comes naturally to you? Use your own mind, your own instincts, ask your mom. No, you need to be like Esther. Seek the Lord, spend time in his presence. Tell him, Lord, I need for you to teach me wisdom. And as you go through life, you start to make those right decisions as just part of your nature. And then there's a fourth character in this story and that's John. That's our hero in the story. You know, at the beginning, I said that all four people in the story were slaves, but only one was free. What did I mean when I said that? Well, Herod was a slave to his appetites. Herodias was a slave to bitterness. Salome was a slave to folly. And although externally, on paper, they had the life that all of us want, would you really want to trade places with any of those people? I mean, do you look back and say, yeah, I'd like to be one of those? No, of course not. And then there's John. John was a slave too. He was a slave to the Lord God Almighty. His heart, his soul, his body, his mind, all of it belonged to God. And every decision he made and every day that he lived, he was seeking greater and greater and greater obedience to the Lord. He was sold out to doing the will of God. And although those Herods lived in a palace and John lived in the desert, they were poor and he was rich. And although they were considered rulers by the most powerful nation on earth, Rome, and he was in a prison cell, he was free. He had a power that they could barely even imagine. He was free. You know, we think of freedom as the ability to do whatever you want. But look at what 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's only one freedom, and that is when you're, when you're yoked to the Lord God Almighty, when the Holy Spirit is inside of you and is in charge of you, that's when you experience real freedom. Look at your life. What really rules you? What governs the decisions you make? Are you governed by, are you ruled by your appetites, by your desires? Are you governed by bitterness? Do you have those grudges you refuse to let go of? Are you governed by folly? You're just making your way through the world, just making choices on a whim. Are you, are you ruled by something else? See, everybody worships something. 
Everybody has at least one king. What's king of your life? Is it ambition? Is it pleasure? Is it power? Is it fear? See, there's only one king who brings you freedom. There's only one master who makes you free, and that is the Lord God. John wasn't a slave to anything else but him. He wasn't a slave to the opinions of others. He said what was on his mind. He wasn't even a slave to his own fear of death. He knew what was going to happen if he criticized the king, and he criticized him anyway. Not because he had a death wish. John wanted to live. Remember last week how discouraged he was moldering in that dungeon and and called out to Jesus, are you really the one? And Jesus soothed his doubts and, and made things right. You know, John wanted to live, but he wanted more than that, to serve God. And the good news is the moment, the moment that axe took his head from his shoulders, in that instant, he was in the presence of the Lord God. And for the first time in his life, he saw him with his own eyes. And for the first time in his life, he was blissfully joyful. He was the happiest man who'd ever lived at that moment. And in, in the 2,000 years since then, he's only gotten happier. And I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to meeting John face-to-face. I don't, know, I don't know when I'll get there, but I know I will meet him eventually. And all the millions of people who will be in the new Jerusalem, I, I know I'll find him at some point because I've got eternity, right? And, and in my mind, at least, when I first meet him, I'm still gonna be intimidated. Even though it's heaven and I know he's not gonna curse me or, or remind me of my sins, it's still, he's John, Right? I'm going to be a little intimidated. I'm not just going to walk right up and say, how's it hanging? I mean, he's, he's, I'm going to be scared. I'm going to have to work up my courage, but I want to see him and I want to tell him, thank you for inspiring me the way you did and for showing me how I needed to be more bold and more humble. And thank you most of all for preparing the way for my savior. See, in 1966, there's a married couple in Cuba, Laureano and Consuelo Iglesias. Laureano was an auto mechanic. They had lived for several years by that time under the regime of uh, Castro. They'd seen friends, neighbors suddenly disappear. They know they were arrested by the secret police. Many of them never, never released. They knew eventually it would happen to them too. And so they began a plan to get out. And it's really, there's no resources. I mean, this is a poor man. So all they knew to do was collect as much scrap metal as they could find. Laureano, with his skills that he had, he, he welded together a makeshift kayak, just barely big enough for the two of them. And they gathered uh, enough food and water for two days. And they got into their boat in, in the dark of the night and they shoved off the coast, hoping against hope to somehow make it to the Florida Keys and safety. Now that's a terrible plan. I mean, that has very little chance of success. You're probably going to die if you do that. You're probably going to die. Fortunately, they didn't. After three days, their food, their water had had gone. They were probably lost all hope, but the U.S. Coast Guard found them off the coast of the Keys, rescued them. They're still alive in America and freedom today. But why would you make a decision like that? Why would you risk your life like that? Because that's what freedom is worth. And there are people, and I don't know who they are, the Holy Spirit does. There are people in this room who right now, you're living a life compared to the rest of this world, you're living a life that's sort of like the life of Herod, right? You've got a lot, a lot on your plate. You've got a lot in your, on your side. You're doing well, but you want more. You're ruled by your appetites. Or you're struggling with bitterness 
or you're living that life of foolishness, making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and you see an opportunity today for freedom. And don't make a mistake they made. Because I know, I know you look and you think, why would I give up what I have now? I mean, what, if I give my heart to Jesus, what, is he gonna, what if he makes me go live in the desert and wear camel's hair and eat bugs? You know, he's probably not going to do that. But I have to tell you, even if he did, you'd be happier there than you are now. Because that's the way it works. Because he's the reason you were created. And knowing him and, and experiencing his love and his goodness, that's what brings fulfillment. That's what fills that hole deep down in the heart of you that nothing else can fill. So I'm asking you to do what that Cuban couple did, except, except you're taking a risk. Yes, you're risking what you have now, but you're not getting into a makeshift boat. No, your rescue is certain, not because of a boat, but because of a cross. And not because you're risking your life, but because Jesus gave his life. Because he died in your place, you have the opportunity for true freedom. And that's yours. That's yours today. Would you receive it? Would you trust him with your life?